Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter and I'm here with Olivia Frico and we're very happy to be joined today by Tony Birch. He's written several novels including Blood and Ghost River and his new novel is called The White Girl. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Um, do you want to introduce us and our listeners to your new book? Yeah, so my new book's called The White Girl and it's a novel set in a fictional town in southeastern Australia in 1963 and it's the story of a, an Aboriginal matriarch, um, Odette Brown, who's the sole carer for her granddaughter, 13-year-old Sissy, and essentially the novel is about the attempts of Odette to ensure that she she is able to keep Sissy with her when her she's under threat from um, authorities and particularly a, a quite a malevolent local police officer who um, target Sissy for child removal, actually. Um, the novel is also set just a couple of years before the 1967 referendum on Aboriginal citizenship, and it's a period of history that is often celebrated, as it should be, but it's also a time when particular government authorities in states like Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria were very um, oppositional to the referendum, and in those last few years before the referendum was passed, some of the actions of legislators, government officials, local police were quite regressive in their relationship with Aboriginal people. So it's essentially about Odette um, ensuring that this copper, um, a Sergeant Lowe in the town they live in, in, in Dean, um, doesn't get hold of Sissy and to ensure Sissy's safety, um, Odette has to make some very difficult decisions and essentially to go on the run to escape his attention. Mm. Um, we might um, we obviously got to talk about Odette and Sissy some more, but um, it's a it's a brilliant relationship and it's a it's a um, it's really something that you've unpacked quite a lot. Um, it's really beautifully done, I think. Sergeant Lowe is. Um, also, some of you you pursued, and you've actually tried to look at what can um, uh, entice someone to behave the way that mm-hmm. um, we think is unthinkable, yeah. like un- unspeakable. Um, he's a he's a veteran. He's uh, he's got a whole backstory. Uh, what was the process in trying to craft? Okay, well, there are a couple of issues. One is my background as an academic is partly as a historian, so I taught Aboriginal history at mm-hmm. Melbourne University for many years. And one of the things that people don't know, and I've done a lot of work as a, a historian on legislation around Aboriginal identity, removals, um, etc., is that a lot of the ways that Aboriginal people are treated by um, non-Aboriginal people, particularly authorities in this, at this time, is really summary. And it depends on the relationship, say, at a local level between a policeman and a, an Aboriginal person. So although there could be laws to say this is the way we will act or this is the way the state will act, there is no consistency, there's a lot of hypocrisies, there's a lot of contradictions. So one of the things I did want to set up is that someone like Odette Brown, she lives a life of uncertainty because she cannot be certain how the law will be administered. So we know that in the novel we, we do have... Sergeant Lowe, we also have another policeman, Bill Shea, who's been negligent in his duty to some extent because of his own habits in some ways in his own life, that um, he pretty much ignores any rules and it's a, that's sort of out of sight, out of mind. If Aboriginal people keep themselves, he's not going to sort of fuss over it. Whereas 
Lowe is both rigid in his administration of law, but you're right, he has a very, almost a pathological attitude towards Sissy and his own authority. So he's a person that I did want to set up to represent the, wor- the worst aspects of this relationship mm. where an Aboriginal person's life um, was constantly in danger or could be constantly in danger because of the actions of a person like Lowe. The other thing as a researcher is that even though he's an exceptional character in some ways in the novel is that he's not atypical so that I've done a lot of work on on detailed archival work as a historian and you come across figures like Sergeant Lowe repeatedly. So um, stuff that I've written about as, as an academic is, for instance, and it's relative to a debt situation where I've written essays on two Aboriginal women in Victoria who wrote letters to the Chief Secretary of Victoria for 10 years to have a child returned who'd been taken away by a local policeman and put on enough reserve. And after 10 years of persistent um, protest and pleased to have the daughter return, um, the manager of the Aboriginal Reserve, which was only about 30 miles away, thinking that these two women might come and visit their daughter, who'd now been incarcerated for a decade, had her shipped off to Melbourne, which was 300 kilometres away, knowing that they would never see that girl. And I know in that family, because I know them personally, they never saw that girl again. They don't know what happened to her. She basically disappeared. So that relationship that, or that place in the novel that Lowe has is a very um, dangerous one, and, and, and he places the life of Odette and Sissy in danger. And you'll notice that there are other figures in the book, um, Dolores, for instance, they represent Aboriginal women who go through horrific um, psychological breakdown because of losing children and never seeing them again, which is, which is a very common story. So I did deliberately want to convey the story of what has happened to Aboriginal people in the 20th century, particularly in Australia, that it is a, a history that affects most Aboriginal people and it would be rare to find an Aboriginal person who hasn't lost at least one relative and never been reunited with them. So, so it was about how he could act. And I suppose I did want to contrast that to some extent. So this is not a novel which says, well, all white people are bad and all Aboriginal people are good, although I don't have any bad Aboriginal people in this novel. There are some really humane figures in this novel, such as Dr Singer, um, who befriends Odette just the way that he treats her with dignity. Um, Henry Lamb, who runs the junkyard, who's been a friend of Odette since childhood. He's he's a wonderful, if eccentric figure. And even I I made a point that when Odette goes to the city, she has some brief encounters with non-Aboriginal people, and some of those... uh, unsavoury, like comments of a, a guy running a cafe, but even when she gets lost in the train station in the centre of the city and one of the porters puts her on his trolley and takes her up to the uh, centre to find her, her granddaughter, I wanted people to understand the possibility and potential of, of relationships of value between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people are, are as evident. So I hope that Sergeant Lowe... Is contrasted against particularly someone like Dr. Singer, for instance. It's definitely a very layered novel in that respect. Um, The one that I thought, the relationship that I thought was interesting was um, Odette's relationship with the gift shop owner who came in and 
obviously thinking she was very benevolent and being extending a hand of kindness and understanding, but just want to, you know, give me some fuel culture, paint me some stuff and, you know, give it the mark of authenticity. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because although the novels are not out yet, some of the um, drafting and chapters I shared with three Aboriginal women I know very well, they love the very minor scene when the woman asks her tribe and she looks at the honey jar and says, oh, we're the Bilga people. And Aboriginal people tend to love that because that's sort of yeah, refusal to be the essential Aboriginal person. Not that she doesn't know her people, but she's not going to um, express that. Mm. One of the things, though, in that relationship, although there's a lot of missteps, what I did toward the end of the novel when that woman is one of the people who writes a favourable reference for Odette, is to say Odette investing in that relationship, which is essentially a financial relationship, is one that in the end is a win for her in other in other ways so I did like that and I love the way that the woman was was shocked to know that Sissy and Odette were related and sort of the way she sort of froze her head back and similarly the um the white matron who they meet on the train who who really can't figure out what essentially Aboriginal life is at at a real level they only have sort of narrow views of Aboriginal life so to meet Odette in real life and have to engage her as a, a three-dimensional person it's very difficult for these people because they have a preconceived notion of someone like Odette and they can't imagine her to be something different from that. Um, I want to um, ask this is a bit difficult but um, I, <laughs> I want to ask um, about the direction of your novels and um, uh, fiction in, 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 in more general, um, in this country, um, we're sitting in a place where um, there's a lot of uncertainty in our culture of, of where we're going um, and, and how to be um, uh, proactive in moving towards reconciliation um, and, and, a, and a better Australia, um, if we can put it that way. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in our leadership um, and the kind of threat that they kind of are sort of posing to us all. Um, what role do you think um, uh, fiction in particular can take in um, addressing this? Well, it can, it can work very well or, or work poorly. Um, mm. I think that, um, look, essentially... Before I came up to Sydney for the Writers' Festival, I was watching again for the second time the James Baldwin documentary, I'm Not Your Negro. And there's a subtle comment that he makes. I mean, he's a great orator and great speaker. He's one of my intellectual heroes. But one of the more subtle things he says, and he does say it several times, is that the problem with America is that it's unable to see itself as it really is. So it lives a sort of a life or a romance or a fable or a fiction. So the realities of slavery and the conditions of racism people still cannot really confront. In Australia, I think similarly, there's a, an inability to, as a nation to see ourselves as we really are. If fiction can open up a discussion which provides a more honest assessment of self as nation mm. and a dialogue and engagement, well, I think it's, it's doing very good work. 
as a historian and a fiction writer, it might surprise people, this story that I love to write is a fictional book. So I don't want to see it in place of doing history. Yeah. I don't want to see it in place of doing necessary rigorous historical work. So I know this became an issue when Kate Grenville did Secret River because we, we discussed this, Kate and I, and um, I don't fall back on an excuse of its only fiction. What I would say is that fiction has a very particular role in the intellectual and cultural discussion that we need to have that you're talking about to, to get to a more um, responsible, ethical understanding of who we are and where we want to go. So my day job, by the way, is in climate justice. So as an academic, I work in climate change. So similarly, um, you know, people say things like, well, how do you talk about climate change and not scare people? You could say, well, how do you talk about racism or colonial violence and not scare people or, or you know, repel people? Well... I understand that, but if you don't come at those discussions in an honest way, you're actually never going to really get to the, the point. So what I would hope people would understand in this book is by this is a you know a truly human story of what happens to one woman, a very courageous woman, is that I hope that people reading this book would come away thinking, I get a greater sense now of the devastating effect of the removal policies in particular, um, the exemption policies in particular, on the lives of Aboriginal people. But I wouldn't want it to stand in place of people understanding the realities because, you know, you could, you could look at the novel and, again, as a historian, if I wanted to pick at the novel as a historian, I'd say, well, would that really have happened quite that way? Possibly not. Would that have happened quite that way? Possibly not. Mm. I'm aware of that, and I wouldn't want to create an outlandish fiction that wasn't plausible or authentic, but I don't see that fiction itself has a role um, that's, that's more vital than doing other forms of work. And essentially, I, the other response talking about sort of the way we tell stories... I worked as a historian, I worked as a creative writing lecturer, and now I work in climate justice. What I would say is that fiction, like other forms of media and representation, are part of a body of work or a body of knowledge that we should access to understand the world. So when I talk creative writing, I would work a lot with photographs and photographers who I say, well, here's a visual essay, here's a visual narrative. How do photographers tell a story of racism or climate justice or, or whatever? And you can learn from that. So as a consumer, and I, you know, I, I'm a mad reader of the newspapers, of books, of film, etc. I would say if I want to understand the issues that you're talking about, I want to access different rep- as much of a variety of representations of that as I can, and fiction, fiction is only one of them. Mm. It is like one of the major touch points, though, between like white cultures re mm. um, and encountering things about yeah. a different culture. Um, so it has an important role in that respect. But um, well, the other thing that you allude to, let's 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 say suggest that this book is successful. Mm. What we do know is that books that books can become real markers of our understanding of culture. And they can work again in a positive way or a problematic way. And when I say problematic in this sense, if you take a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, which I love, is that it is at one point a very humane book. And it has, we know over the years, 
cloud the notion of, of liberalism, of this, the heroic character of that being Atticus Finch, this, this white man. And he is in a way. Some people read that book without any sort of critical understanding of what that might mean. So you, you, what you're talking about, I think, is so right. It, it's, fiction can be incredibly powerful and maybe too powerful in some, in some instances, but not that I would regret that if it happened to mm. me. <laughs> the power of those tropes and the characters like Atticus um, is just so ingrained in our culture that we just crave it in all of our entertainment. Um, mm. So it's kind of understandable that we seek that in, our, yeah. in real life, but and it, also, it may not necessarily be there. And also there's another issue that you're... If we think of... I remember when the... Um, I think it was when Harper Lee's second book came out. We did an event at the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne through the Wheeler Centre. In, in a way, a group of writers and thinkers and legal scholars, I think, talking about the book. And the problem here, or no, not a problem, the challenge here is we need to think about the intelligence or the engagement of the reader and how, to what level are we responsible for that, their response. So when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the things I talk about that night, and I never recognised it when I was a teenager reading the book for school, is that Atticus is quite open about the limitations of the law. The law is not going to work for African-American people. You are, you are stuck in this um, cage which will not give you justice. So in a way, the book, Harper Lee's very, it's a very smart book for saying, well, the limitations of rights here are being upheld by the law in a democracy under the Constitution, but often people miss that. They'll, they'll miss those elements. The issue for a writer is you can't be overly drawn to that because one is you can't be prescriptive on what your readers can and should think. Um, and it's always, for me, something I grapple with, but it's not something I would... I wouldn't want my book to be... any of my books to be didactic. So when I did the novel... Um, Ghost River one of my central characters is an Aboriginal man who lives on the river who's homeless, is a drunk and drinks methylated spirits. He could be the worst epitome of a negative stereotype of Aboriginal people but I felt when I wrote the book I can make him a character of real value. I can make this man someone who is loved by these boys in the book and loved by readers but I also know that Someone could pick that book up and say, oh, look, this is what Aboriginal people like, you know, drunks and no hopers, but I can't be responsible to that unsophisticated reading. Um, I did a, a celebration of um, Tom Keneally's The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. I don't know if it was the 40th anniversary for Australian Book Review. And I think it's a remarkable novel. It's a novel set in 1900, just before the birth of the nation, and I think what Keneally is actually doing is, and I was saying, this is the corruption of colonial violence, you know, right at the birth of the nation. And you notice in that book, um, Jimmy is surrounded by these acts of colonial violence and then he responds to it. And I think it's a very sophisticated novel for that. Anita Heiss, a wonderful Aboriginal woman, a friend of mine, she said, yeah, but Tony essentially is about an Aboriginal axe murderer. Most people are not going to get that reading. So it's that dilemma you have as a writer to... When I taught creative writing and the way I think it is as a writer, I believe when I'm writing, I'm writing for an intelligent reader, and I don't mean that in a high intellectual way, you know, someone, and a generous reader who wants to be challenged 
I'm not writing for someone who's you know, self-consciously ignorant. Well said. Hmm. Um, and if you are one of those readers, um, we can only highly recommend Tony's books. Um, uh, the White Girl is um, absolutely fantastic. Um, and we uh, want to uh, bring it out to the world and introduce it to as many people as possible. Um, we wish you all the very best with it. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much for coming in and spending some time with us today. Well, I love coming out Paramount Road. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy all of Tony's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.